Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Robert Evans here. And I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast which I'm recording at eight in the morning and thus without any of my colleagues. Uh, And I'm joined today to discuss technological aspects of the border regime by Austin Coker of Syracuse University and by Jake Wiener of the Electronic Privacy Information Center. Hi, guys. Morning. How are you doing, James? I'm good. Um, I'm very excited to talk more border stuff. I like covering this, even though it's sometimes terrible. Uh, So what I wanted to start off with is I think our listeners will be familiar with CBP1, right? The most cursed cell phone app uh, of all time. And both of you have written a lot and very uh, insightfully about CBP-1. So I thought we could kind of do a little bit of a breakdown of uh, A, the issues with it, and B, like with the issues with it as an app, and then the, the fact that we're using an app being a problem inherently. Uh, so perhaps we could start with, I know, uh, Jake, you mentioned you wanted to talk a little bit about the design of the app so and the process of sort of commissioning it and making it. Should we start there? Yeah, and I think this story is pretty interesting and unique um, because CBP-1 was built in-house by a small team at um, the Office of Field Operations in CBP. Yeah, which is, it's unique. Like there's one other app that they built and I don't really know 
of other mobile apps that have been rolled out with anything close to the size of CBP-1 that have been designed by a government agency. Yeah, that's kind of an odd choice. You know, conceptually, it's not something I'm critical of. Like, I think if we're going to have a government that's providing services, it's good for them to do things Mm in-house. Like, it means you're not relying on third parties who are able to, like, use information from the app and benefit (laughs) off of it. Um, But it does mean you need the institutional competency to be able to design an app. Um, Damn, that's interesting. And so, to just, like, provide a quick history, basically... A CBP-1 app was built off of the framework of an older app called CBP Rome. That app was used just for people boating on the Great Lakes, because technically, if you go like boating on Lake Michigan, you will leave the United States if you chase a fish over the, the boundary <laughs> to Canada. Yeah. Um, yeah. And CBP felt that it was very important that people who did that reported leaving and coming back into the United States. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> questionable, yeah. but... They, they built an app to let people do that. Um, and the framework for that app used a GPS ping to verify when you're back in the US. Okay. So this is a small app. You know, I don't think they encountered too many problems with it because you right. have maybe a couple hundred visitors a day. Um, and on that framework, they built out CBP1 to do a couple of things. Um, it's used for... Folks like customs folks. So if you're importing goods into the country, you can do some of that reporting through CBP-1. You can also use it to apply for the and obtain the I-94 travel form, which is the form that like most folks coming to the United States are going to need. Mm-hmm. Um, and then critically for, for our uses is that if you are applying for asylum, you can use it to schedule an appointment. Yeah, that's been the bulk of my reporting on it. Is that the bulk of its use? I think so, yeah. Okay. And so that's, I'm still blown away by the fact they designed it in-house. It's, it's crazy. Uh, did you ever find the job, the job postings for the people who designed it? Or did they just like get some people who were good at IT to kind of take a swing at it? The, so as far as I know from, you know, I've talked to one of the people involved in the creation. Mm-hmm. I think Austin has as well. Um, my understanding is that it was like an in-house team that already existed. Okay. But I, Austin, you may be able to clarify that. Yeah, that's my understanding too. I think they have a, a technology team within the agency that uh, is using technology in 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 various ways. We I, I don't think we have a full understanding of the scope mm-hmm. of their responsibilities and the work that they've done. I think to Jake's point, it is quite interesting that they produce something for the public. Um, it's not unusual, of course, for uh, large agencies to have teams in house that that deal with all of the general technological challenges that that every agency in 2023 yeah. faces you know databases you know keeping government cell phones working and secure and all of that all of that kind of thing but a lot of the things that are public facing from federal agencies tend to be contracted out to a private vendor in yeah. some way uh so this is it's quite unique and and um uh yeah, but i don't think we have a full scope of, of okay. what they what they are aren't producing in-house yeah, they, uh, that's interesting because they, they heavily rely on uh, outside contractors for so much of that. Like, there's a whole industry that you know starts here in San Diego and goes over to Tucson uh, and uh, probably further into New Mexico of, of people providing surveillance technology to Border Patrol. And, it's, uh, and then, you know, goes over to the West Bank too, where, where lots, of, lots of it can be seen. Having talked about the uh, their sort of unique approach to design, it's probably a good idea to then talk about the implementation of ZAP and its 
kind of lackluster as an understatement. It just fucking sucks. It's terrible. Um, so, like, what in what many ways has it been unfit for the purpose that it's supposed to do? So, I guess first we can talk about its technological inadequacies, and then more broadly about why this isn't a problem you can really solve with an app on a telephone that needs broadband and Wi-Fi. Yeah. So I'll start by saying that I think a lot of what's happening with the problem the CBP One app is institutional blindness. So the people who design the app, I genuinely think want it to work well. Mm -hmm. And I think they're simply not asking the questions that you need to be asking. And when you design an app like this, which is who's really going to be using it? What are their needs? What technology, what wireless services today? What phones are they using? Basically, like if you're someone on the southern border with very little money and probably an outdated phone. Yes. Are you going to be able to use this app? Not a great camera. Um, and so I think the first place to start with that is simply the fact that the app requires a strong Wi-Fi or cell signal to use, which is not always present. Um, and I think Austin has, has some good insight into the problems with insufficient Wi-Fi. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I think what, some of what's interesting here is the way not only that the app relies on Wi-Fi, but then the kind of uh, real-world social consequences here um, for how people then try to cope with these problems. I want to take one step back just really quickly and, and discuss the world that CBP was dropped into because mm -hmm. there's some important context here. Yeah. So as I know you've already covered, James, um, you know, over the past three years, uh, the, the dominant uh, border control policy was Title 42, mm -hmm. a uh, COVID-era policy that uh, was purportedly um, uh, motivated by concerns about public health. This is where Title 42 comes from. Title 42 of the U.S. Code pertains to issues of questions of public health. It's not an immigration policy. It, it was a public health policy, although detailed reporting um, has, I think, pretty well established that it was more of a political uh a moment of political opportunism rather than a legitimate public health concern. But regardless, that policy uh, allowed cus uh, Customs and Border Protection to effectively turn back anyone who arrived at the border, whether they attempted to cross unlawfully or not. And the primary human rights concern here was uh, uh, people who were seeking asylum, uh, which is their right to do. Um, one of the uh, aspects of Title 42 was that there was a, a rare exemption clause built in allowed people who are you know particularly vulnerable or particular humanitarian concern um, to uh, to attempt uh, to effectively apply for this kind of exemption and until January of this year that process was run by nonprofit organizations CBP had this sort of informal outsourced system where NGOs on the Mexican side of the border would effectively conduct massive amounts of intake and prioritization and triaging of these cases um, and then submit, you know, names to CBP to um, to allow people to come through ports of entry. CBP one effectively replaced that system in January, which meant that instead of migrants going through the NGOs, uh, they would have to download this app, fill out the information, and send it in. This is really important to mention because the groundwork was actually laid by a tremendous amount of effectively unpaid labor um, on, on the backs of NGOs on the southern side. Of the border, and you know, it is it is fair and accurate to say that this was an extremely imperfect system. 
um, and that there were absolutely, you know, yeah. significant issues with this. Um, but one of the interesting things is that the role that NGOs played um, meant that people coming and seeking asylum would then, in in some ways, be potentially connected with a broader network mm-hmm. of of NGO support services, advocacy, and so forth. So the introduction of CBP-1 purportedly bypassed the work of NGOs in screening uh, people for the exemption process. However, NGOs still ended up performing all this kind of invisible labor because they're the ones who effectively were working with migrants to make Wi-Fi available. And it's not just Wi-Fi, it's actually charging your phone. When I visited Mm -hmm. shelters and camps on the southern side of the border at the end of 2022, a a big part of the having camps and shelters was actually providing electricity. Um, you know, when I was there, and I know others have reported on this, James, I'm sure you've seen this too, you know, people would be huddled around the outlets yeah. because uh, they needed to charge their phone. If their phone didn't work, uh, if their phone wasn't charged, they didn't have access prior to CBP-1. This was already a challenge because the primary form of communication with CBP was phone calls. They would Individuals would get phone calls. In fact, I interviewed a Russian family on the uh, Mexican side of the border in Matamoros in November, last November. And the family now, they and many of the other migrants I spoke with, and this was also true for many migrants, by the way, the families, uh, typically the wife and children, if they were a family unit, would stay either in a hotel or a shelter or someplace that was more safe. And then the men would effectively have to nights on the street where they could actually get cell phone coverage mm-hmm. and things like that. So CBP-1 introduced all of these kind of technological demands. It's not that they weren't there before, but I, it, I think it's a different matter when you go from interacting with a network of NGOs to saying, now you're actually interacting with the U.S. government, and this is the only way that you're going to be able to enter the country. I think those demands um, were, were quite high, and they've, they've clearly had some tremendously negative impacts for migrants trying to come through that way. Yeah, definitely. I know... Uh have one here but we bought so many of these like solar powered charging brick things and distributed those but uh i have so many photos of people's hands reaching through the wall and people trying to charge their phone on the other side of the wall you know and it's been a big demand for a while but it's certainly when cbp were detaining people in places where they didn't have power and then expecting them to also communicate using their telephones uh, that became a particularly sort of ridiculous issue um, very upsetting to see it like done like that so yeah this this app really isn't a solution for the problem we're facing which is as you said like a three-year backlog on people who have legitimate asylum claims being able to make those asylum claims and i guess can we talk about who it favors in you know implementing this system as a catch-all right not an option but the option who does that favor and who does it not Yeah, before we get there, I think it might be helpful to just run through like what it is like to use CBP one. Oh yeah, let's talk about you have to go through because it is a yeah. And that's I and when you're thinking about that, think that every step is a potential failure point, right? Mm -hmm. Every step you could have a glitch, and anytime you have a glitch happen, it's going to kick you out of the app, and you have to restart. Yeah. So if you're on the southern border, need to apply for asylum, you've been walking for months from venezuela guatemala etc you got your phone 
First thing you have to do is log into the app through login.gov. That's the single sign-on service that many government agencies use. Uh, it works fairly well, but you got you need, so you register yourself a profile. Then you're going to navigate over. Hopefully, you speak one of the languages that CBP One is available in. As of now, I believe that's English, Spanish, and Haitian Creole. Although they may have added a new language recently. Um, you find the right place on the app. Not always super clear to submit your asylum application and try and schedule an appointment. And then you're going to have to fill out a ton of information. You're giving CVP your name, addresses, people you know in the U.S. You know, big form to fill out, um, including often information on like how vulnerable you are. So like, are you pregnant? Are you disabled? Have you been threatened in Mexico? Information that they you know want to use to prioritize you, hopefully. Um, and then you're going to need to take a facial photograph. That's going to go into CBP and Department of Homeland Security's databases. It'll be run against facial recognition searches um, that they populate with like this massive facial recognition system, the Traveler Verification Service um, that can flag people who are on CBP's target list, TSA's target list. Um, you could be wrongfully flagged by that because facial <laughs> recognition is not a perfect technology. Mm -hmm. You're also going to take a facial liveness scan. It's related to facial recognition, but it is different. It's a different technology, and it is untested. Um, there's, there's been no government agency that has evaluated facial liveness or bias. Um, and that basically is trying to figure out, are you a real person, or are you like a picture of James that you're holding up? Oh, yeah. Because you're <laughs> you know, trying yeah, to get yeah. James a, yeah. an appointment and then sell it to him later or something. Mm -hmm. um, do the facial liveness scan. That's been the sticking point where folks with darker skin and indigenous folks have not been able to get through it. Mm -hmm. um, we can talk about that a little later. Yeah. You're also going to do a GPS ping. So your phone pulling from both cell towers and GPS data is going to try and establish your location and send it to CBP. That can create problems if you're pinging off a US cell tower. Suddenly it's less reliable. It might look like you're in the US. And once you get through all these steps, then you're able to submit your information and you're in a lottery for whether or not you get an appointment. Great. Uh, yeah, let's the photo thing I think has been covered. I don't, maybe I perceive it to have been covered extensively because this is what I do. But uh, I think maybe some people aren't aware of the complete inadequacy mm -hmm. of those facial liveness scans. And I know some nonprofits in Tijuana have light booths, which, which can help with that. But it's not, you know, it, it's again like that money could be doing something more useful, right? And then making like a like an Instagram booth for people who just want to use the exercise their legal right to claim asylum. So let's talk about that that technology yeah. and how it's not working. Yeah, I think one really important factor here, and the reason I wanted to paint some of the context was um and and partly it's selfish because as a geographer, I'm always very, you know, eager to um evangelize about the importance of understanding social geography. Uh, for thinking about yeah. questions of you know human rights and asylum and immigration, so the facial liveness test is a great example of that. So um, you know it, it's hard to see this unless you've been on the ground in some of these places. Um, but you know again, just a historical thing that I think will be pretty non-controversial. Um, Anti-black racism is something that's existed for a very long time. It's not just in the United States; it's around the world, obviously. Yeah. 
um, not everywhere, but, but, you know, obviously through colonialism, through settler colonialism and so forth, it's really shaped not just anti-Black racism, but anti-Black racism itself has produced many of the geographies that we have from redlining, segregation, educational acts, all kinds of things. Yeah. The way that the social world looks today is already shaped um, by these issues of racism. What that then means is questions like um, who has access to cell phone towers and fast Wi-Fi and who can afford up-to-date smartphones that can meet all of the, the mm -hmm. threshold of require the technological requirements uh, to use this to use this app and use the software is already distributed and, and 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 fractured by questions of race and identity. What that means is even if the facial liveness test worked perfectly and uh, and and there were no issues with the software, which is not true, but let's even just assume that, it is still true that access to that technology and software is already structured by race. Yeah. So one of the things I noticed, you know, having spent time along the border was just how much even in some of the shelters and where black and African migrants uh, had access to shelter was itself uh, much tended to be more pushed to the out outside yeah. of the where you're, where you're less likely to get good cell phone coverage, less likely to have electricity, much more likely that the roads, even where I visited, were not paved. And I was there when it was raining um, yeah. in Reynosa one day. And, you know, oh, even yeah, getting right. some of the places where African migrants and African families mm -hmm. uh, were staying and black migrants, by the way, from Latin America. Let's just remind everyone that there are uh, black yeah. Latinos living in Latin America. Right. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're also pushed, you know, more to the outskirts. And as a result of that. Um, those factors contributed to access. So it wasn't just um, issues with the software itself, which may be there. It's hard for me to evaluate. It's not, you know, because it's not like we've done our own evaluation of that. Um, but it's also all of those contextual factors. And I just want to make a fine point on this. We know this already. CBP should understand that already and understand the various social factors that impact access. So simply saying, for instance, if one wanted to take a defensive position and say, well, look, we ran the test, the software works as intended, there's no racial bias in the software. That doesn't get CBP out of the responsibility of saying, yes, but you absolutely had all the information and, and a reasonable person should have known that this the access to this app had these kind of technological requirements and, there were, and that access was not evenly distributed. Yeah, I think it's really important that you said that actually, because a lot of reporters, it does get reported on, there are people doing great work, but like sometimes it gets missed because African migrants might not speak Spanish, black African migrants, uh, you know, might, and a lot of reporters don't have the language skills to talk to people in. I worked with a fixer who spoke um, Romo and Tigrayan and, and a lot of other, like five or six other languages. And, and that helped to get me an insight into the, the very difficult situation that lots of African people face. And, you know, that their isolation, the relative lack of resources, even in what's a pretty resource sparse setting for everyone. And uh, I know Haitian people, I've spoken to a lot of Haitian people, um, Plus, then you add that, like, if I think about last month, the languages which I was able with through friends, through translation to speak to people with, you know, Vietnamese, Comanche, which is a dialect of Kurdish, French, right? Swahili, Spanish, evidently, Dutch. Aside from Spanish, those are not covered. Maybe if you're French, you can 
I think it would be still hard to, to work in Haitian Creole if you, if you spoke sort of more um, mainland French. Uh, those are not covered by the app, right? So you have to find a way to access that with, via translation. And then it's very, the information makes you incredibly vulnerable to whom, whomever, if you're asking someone to share, right? Like it's a, imperfect, it's, it's not a sufficient way to describe it, but it, it's an extremely flawed system. To Jake's point, like I, I'm also like, kind of open-minded about, you know, about using an app like this. I mean, there's, I mean, Jake's right. I mean, if you're going to have a government in the, in 2023, like having some reasonably up-to-date ways to do things is not an unreasonable expectation, but there's just so many blatantly obvious uh, uh, sort of shortcomings that are not difficult to identify. Um, in preparing this app and understanding what people are likely to need. So to have those gaps and then also to roll out the app um, at a time when the the same policy announcement that rolls out this app is also a policy announcement that says this is the only way to do it. I mean, imagine if like your new policy for like healthcare for some particular healthcare, you know, thing was like, you have to go through this route and we know that 80% 80% of people aren't going to be able to use this, but now this is the only treatment you have an option for. I mean, that would be, that, it's just strange. I, I, think, I think one thing to just think about creatively here is I can imagine a phased rollout of this where they did improve it over time, mm-hmm. but there were adequate you know, uh, uh, outlets for people who didn't fit into the categories that, that they had built into the app. Um, and I think I think that would be a more complex and more nuanced and maybe a more, more interesting way to do it. I just don't think I, I don't think it was rolled out responsibly in that way. Yeah, yeah. I doubt. think we should be honest that beta testing an app on hundreds of thousands of the most vulnerable people in the world is incredibly yeah. irresponsible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, it's just cruel. It's not uh, in any way appropriate. So <laughs> I guess uh, we've talked a lot about this app. Let's talk about, let's say you're fortunate enough to get an asylum appointment to, to enter the US. Um, you would then, in most cases, enter something which is called CBP's Alternatives to Detention System. ISIS. ISIS, sorry, yeah, you're right. Let's explain a little bit, like, why is it an alternative to detention? What, what, why would one be detained? You haven't, in theory, done anything wrong. Well, in, in many people's perspective, haven't done anything wrong, I guess. Uh, and then what, what does ATD mean? And then we can get into some of the uh, privacy issues and the way that it affects not just migrants, but but also everyone. Yeah, one thing before we go there, I think would be great. Um, Just closing the loop on the racial bias discussion. Mm -hmm. Um, This is like an element of my advocacy that I talk about all the time in different areas of like how facial recognition is used um, when it's used in the criminal justice system is that they're absolutely is bias in most facial recognition systems. They work really well for white men and increase increasingly less well, basically, as you run down the privilege spectrum. Um, that's yeah. an element of how these systems are designed, right? It's they get fed a lot of images of white men and fewer images of other folks. That's fixable, right? Like you can provide a training database that is a whole, you know, a good spread of people. Um, it seems to not necessarily have been done with the facial liveness for CBP one, um, in part because the British company that designed it probably did not have access to 
a lot of images of the type of people who would be on the southern border. You're talking about like indigenous Mexican folks, Ishiel mm-hmm. folks, just a, a very large number of of different ethnicities. Um, mm-hmm. But any bias like that is, as Austin said, sitting on top of a series of other biases, right? Of structural biases. And so the result we see with a lot of facial recognition systems and this facial aliveness system in CBP1 is no different, is that a little bit of, even a little bit of bias in how the facial recognition works gets amplified. And it's amplified by social biases. It's amplified by the biases of people who run the system and people who interact with it every day. Uh, and then it's amplified by you know institutional blindness as well, failure to recognize a problem. Um, we had facial recognition systems rolled out since, on some level, since like the early to, to mid two thousands, mm-hmm. and we didn't even know that facial rec- that bias was a problem in any facial recognition system until twenty eighteen. So, mm-hmm. when you're thinking about and you're hearing about like bias testing and the fact that it's been bias tested. Those tests are never incredibly reliable because they're not done in the real world. They're not done with the people actually using the technology. They're done in a you know, controlled setting um, and they're not. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. Now, this is a show for the Nosabo kids, the the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. If you ever felt like you were always too much this while also never being enough that, this is the podcast for you. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more via my own personal stories, along with interviews with inspiring thought leaders from our community. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community that you need to know. So much of what makes our community so beautiful is our diversity, yet too often those of us who don't fit into this dumb, stereotypical box of whatever it means to be Latino are left without a voice or just forgotten about. On this show, I celebrate the uniqueness of our culture and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Done by people who have a nuanced understanding of how the technology impacts people. Yeah, I think it's very important to remember that, yeah, there's layers upon layers of bias and they stack to make it harder and harder for certain people coming to the United States to get, again, what's that right? And, and often to just be safe, right? Like some people, especially the less advantaged you are sort of on a global scale, the likely the less safe you are waiting in Mexico uh, to make an appointment for your asylum, right? Like if you if you can't get into a shelter or you're, you're from a group where you don't have community to look out for you, you're just that bit more likely to be taken advantage of or have something bad happen to you or your family. So yeah, it, it all stacks up, I guess, to make for a very unfortunate situation for people. Yeah, which means the consequence of having a glitch happen is way higher. Mm. Yes, right? I've personally known people who have had terrible consequences from what should have been a very, very straightforward asylum application and, and very easy to process very rapidly. And yeah, it's, 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 a whole, it's a whole mess. And I know I'm trying to speak more to some of the folks who work with African migrants um, because I think that often, yeah, their stories just don't get told. Especially at our southern border, where like I think obviously there's this like a uh, a lot of people like to report on the border but not leave New York or um, DC or wherever they have their studio or newspaper or what have you. And I think it's easy to miss that if you haven't, like Gossard said, like like been around a lot and seen all these things that stack up on top of one another. But uh, yeah, it's an important topic that we don't, especially as like. I know that it doesn't get reported on because everyone likes to report on Ukraine and only Ukraine, but like as more wars in Africa or wars in, um, you know, people from Myanmar, it, 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 it's very hard for them to get to the southern border, actually, from hearing from thousands, maybe different cases where people can't leave Thailand. But uh, again, the system, you know, it, when you have a whole other alphabet that you're trying to access the system in and it doesn't work for you, then that makes it incredibly difficult for those people. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what we call a cliffhanger in the podcasting industry because we will be back tomorrow with more on how ICE tracks migrants and how that tracking of migrants can impact other people, people who live with them, people in their communities. Uh, I hope you'll join us then. Thanks. Bye. Hi everyone, it's James, and I am back with Austin and Jake to discuss ICE's Alternative to Detention program today. If you didn't listen to yesterday's episode on CBP-1 and a little bit of ATD, then I'd suggest starting there because there's a lot of context that you might be missing in today's episode. Let's talk about alternatives to detention a bit. Let's, uh, this, is a, this is a once inside the US system, right? So it, it's a little different. It's people who've managed to get through the significant hurdles posed by CBP-1. What happens to them then? Yeah, so, um, you know, ICE has the option of detaining people um, mm -hmm. at immigrant detention facilities. Um, this includes people who are facing deportation, most people who are facing deportation. Yeah. Can you explain that, the Title Eight thing? Because people might not be familiar. I've tried to explain that before, but I'd love you to explain that again, just so people are clear. Regarding detention? Well, regarding like filing a defensive asylum application and why people might be doing that, like uh, it post like the post Title Forty Two sort of paradigm for for processing asylum. 
Yeah, sure. Okay, so Title 42, which we talked about earlier, has gone away. Um, which mean now Title 8 is not like Title 42. It's the part of the U.S. law which is about immigration. Title 8 never went away, um, but it is now the dominant, you know, uh, uh, section of code that's that that is shaping border enforcement and immigration processing. When someone comes through CBP one, and they they get an appointment, yeah. they go to their interview at the port of entry, then they come into the United States. They have not made an asylum application yet, so they still have to do that. And the U.S. the United States has two options at this point. There's two agencies that can make decisions, can receive asylum applications and make decisions. USCIS, which mm -hmm. is historically the primary one, U.S. Citizenship mm -hmm. and Immigration Services, they have what are called asylum officers whose job it is to adjudicate asylum applications, interview people, and so forth. Or people, uh, the United States can uh, file removal proceedings, deportation cases effectively against these individuals, and put them into immigration court where an immigration judge can accept an asylum application and adjudicate the asylum application. The major difference here is that in the courtroom, uh, in, in the immigration court system, that individual is going in front of a judge and has an ICE officer, an enforcement you know, related uh, kind of attorney, uh, effectively arguing against them in court. Technically, they're not supposed to be arguing against them per se. They're supposed to be finding the right outcome, but effectively they're arguing against them. Right. Almost like they're, you know, trying to apply for asylum in immigration court or in like a criminal court setting, almost not really, but almost. Yeah. Um, right. So here's the two main differences. When mm -hmm. those individuals, you know, historically, when people have been put into the immigration court system, ICE does have the option of detaining them or at least detaining them for an early part of that process um, until they meet some certain thresholds, The Biden administration has decided largely at this point not to go that route. Um, that has not been true in the past. The Trump administration's detention numbers were up well over 60,000 people detained a day at one point. Right now, it's about half that. It's up from the beginning of the year, but it's about almost 30,000 people are in detention now. And people seem to be moving through, even when they are detained, relatively quickly. This is where alternatives to detention come in. Um, I, we should not think of alternatives to detention as alternatives to detention. In fact, ICE itself has said on their website and in testimony before Congress, alternatives to detention is not an alternative to detention. It is an alternative to unsupervised release. Right. So it's what it really is, is an electronic monitoring program that allows the agency to effectively keep track of everyone that they want to keep track of. Mm -hmm. Now, the number of people in this alternatives to detention program is an extremely small fraction of the number of asylum systems in court. It is nowhere yeah. near, you know, saturating the to total number of people that they could be. Uh, one wonders whether they consider 5% monitoring some kind of massive success. Uh, when you know when most people are actually not monitored, but one major change has happened, which is in addition to the smartphone app that migrants use to even try to seek asylum, now migrants also have to download an app called SmartLink. Yeah, uh, that is now this one is not built in house. This is contracted out uh, from an organization called BI that effectively mostly contracts with the criminal justice system. 
but they also contract with ICE. So they have to download a, an app on their phone and they have to check in regularly using a, a similar but different kind of facial technology. Um, they can communicate with deportation officers. They can get alerts about their immigration court here, all this stuff. Um, but but the crucial part of that is under threat of detention or redetention, redetaining, uh, migrants have to check in on their smartphone. So it means that that same phone that one you know struggled with on the periphery of Reynosa, trying to just even get into the United States to pursue what is their legal right to pursue asylum, now they're glued to their smartphone, worried that if they don't respond to you know a text message or an alert or a ping on their phone. They could be redetained and you know potentially deported in some way. Um, so that that's currently how this is. So it's not for everyone. It's not as if everyone follows this exact same path. But it is true, and I think this is the big takeaway. It is true that asylum seekers today will start interacting with the U.S. government, may start interacting with the U.S. government on their smartphone as far south as Mexico City, mm-hmm. and then continue to have their primary contact. And, and, and interaction with the U.S. government on their smartphone all the way through the border and to Columbus, Ohio, New York City, Seattle, Washington. So the smartphone has become effectively this kind of what I am, am trying to think of and conceptualize as a kind of mobile border They never, where migrants never really arrive and they never really leave. Yeah, which is kind of... Not to uh, get too sort of, I guess, not conspiratorial is the wrong word, but like since 2001, the border has come to you more and more and more, right? And, and you don't have to go for the, to the border for the border to surveil you. And we can see this in, in hundreds of ways. Can we backtrack a little bit, just because our listeners will be familiar with some of the human stories that surrounded the end of Title 42? Some of those people, to my understanding, uh, entered the United States, I'm doing heavy air quotes, between ports of entry, uh, under Title 42, but then were detained. It is fairly obvious. They they thought they were being detained. It looked very much like they were being detained. They weren't allowed to leave. CBP apparently would argue that they were not detained um, because the conditions were woefully inadequate by their own detention uh, policies, which, which don't exactly provide for luxurious conditions to begin with. And so... What would the situation be for those people? Because they haven't, they were trying, at least some people I spoke to, to make CBP one appointments from a place of detention, which I don't think one can do. Um, maybe one can if, if, if one's not on a list or something, but you still have to get there, right? And, and you can't leave South or North to, to, to access. You, you have to be in Mexico to schedule an appointment on CBP one. Okay, yeah. Uh, these guys were in between the border as, walls. As, so. as Jake knows better than I do, I mean, the issue with being along the border, and James, you know this, because, yeah. I mean, you're there, uh, which cell tower you're on if you're close to the border mm-hmm. uh, oh, is yeah. a little trickier, isn't it? I got... Um, I, so I use T-Mobile. But that's a free buzz marketing. Um, but they I have free, ro- free roaming on my phone, right? It's very useful in the work I do. But uh, I remember in 2018... Uh, I was in Mexico a lot, and then I was obviously also just riding my bike a lot in places along the border. And they were like, you've been in Mexico every day this month. You don't live in America. We're going to cancel your phone contract. Uh, I had been in Mexico like some days, but they had all this thing. Oh, you're pinging Mexican cell towers. Yeah, well, I was on a bike ride like in, in East County, San Diego. I wasn't in Mexico, but it, my phone thought I was. And so, yeah, and it, it, the same thing can happen in reverse, right? Your, your phone can ping American cell towers when you're in Mexico. So... 
those people might appear to be in the US when they're not. But in that situation, they couldn't make a CBP-1 appointment. So I guess they're assumed to have... It's the same as if they'd um, crossed the, the fence somewhere else and been detained 10 miles inside the United States, right? What would their process be? Yeah, so I think if we're talking about right now, this is mm -hmm. actually a really important, is that the yeah. new rule called Circumvention of Lawful Pathways that replaced yeah. Title 42, supposed to happen like three years ago. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's it finally got passed. Um, yeah. Basically, there were a number of court challenges in mm -hmm. which red states tried to keep Title Forty Two in place. Um, yeah. The same states, mind you, who were uh, very critical of COVID protections, were mm -hmm. extremely worried about lifting yes. the ban on people on the southern border coming in because of COVID concerns. Um, part of what that rulemaking did was it worked a fundamental change in the way that asylum seeker, seekers work. Um, and so like just context, asylum, claiming asylum is a human right. It is a right guaranteed by international law. It is a right guaranteed by US law mm -hmm. that you can show up and say, hey, I am not safe in the country that I'm coming from and I need asylum in the States. And you have a right to do that. And for the US or whatever country you arrive in to process your claim and decide if it's valid or not. Uh, so one of the changes in this rulemaking was that they are applying what is called, the government is applying a presumption of ineligibility yes. to people seeking asylum, which means that if you did not show up in the proper manner, the United States, that means if you did not use the CBP-1 app to claim asylum before you got to the border, and if you did not apply for asylum in every country that you traveled through along the way, if you traveled from Guatemala and you did not pay for apply for asylum in Mexico before you got to the border, you are automatically deemed ineligible yeah. and your asylum claim will be denied with no hearing, with no opportunity to say, hi, I'm here because like my husband is a police officer somewhere in Guatemala and he's trying to kill me and I can't stay in the country. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that is a, like fundamental change in the way the law works. And that's the starting point of someone who has crossed illegally, not used CBP one, um, and then is picked up. That's, and that's new in the law in 2023. Yeah. And so they would immediately be filing like a defensive asylum application, right? To prevent that removal. Yes. And basically at that point, you're trying to argue for one of a tiny subset of exemptions. Yes. Um, which there is, virtually no guidance on how to implement those exemptions, right? Like one thing you can claim is that you cross without a CVP-1 appointment because you couldn't use the app. Um, mm -hmm. The idea of trying to prove to someone at the Customs and Border Protection that you were technologically enabled to use an app seems basically impossible, um, given that the only proof that you have is that you didn't get the appointment, right? That you weren't able yeah. to submit it. Um, that's not a strong record that a lawyer would like to argue on, I will tell you, as a lawyer. Um, and so the result is basically that people who have certainly legitimate asylum claims are likely to be turned away because they didn't comply with the proper process. Yeah, even people we heard, um, what was it, Hidalgo? I can't remember where it was now, where uh, customs or officials in Mexico have been threatening to detain people 
for longer than it so they couldn't make it in time for their cbp1 appointment right that they had already made they'd, they'd gone through that arduous and, and biased process made the appointment and then people were being detained unless they paid a bribe and then then if those people had crossed um like illegally in between ports of entry it would be very hard for them to prove that they could or that that had happened at all right like what it caused them to do that so it, those people are in an even more difficult scenario um if people then through any of these processes find themselves in a atd alternative to detention um there are numerous ways it could be surveilled austin mentioned that the the phone app which i think is is the perhaps the like most recent and most common one um another one is ankle monitors right you can get like a, a parole kind of style of ankle monitor. And I know that, uh, Jake, you've written a little bit about some of the consequences of those. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So first of all, an overview of the ATP program mm -hmm. is that there are different levels of monitoring. Okay. And all of them are, I think, should functionally be viewed as e-carceration, which is to say that you are not, you've not been released from custody. Just the location of your custody has been moved from a prison to somewhere out in the world where you're being surveilled and your movements are potentially tracked. But you are still, in many ways, as vulnerable as you would be if you were actually in a jail or a prison. Um, and so ICE has the option to decide at their discretion which level of monitoring you get. The levels of monitoring, um, the highest level is an ankle bracelet or an ankle shackle. That is a GPS device that is battery powered, has potentially only a few hours of charge on it. You, you might get a day of charge off of it and is constantly monitoring your location and sending that location back to both ICE and to the contracting staff of BI Industries, this prison technology company, who ICE has hired as case managers, basically people who are providing like support for ICE on keeping track of the usually eight to 10,000 people who are on the ankle monitor system. Um, if you don't get quite that high a level, or if you get de-escalated over time, you you know apply to ICE and you say, "Hey, I've been on my ankle bracelet for like three months. I've not strayed outside the area I'm supposed to go. I've always responded to check-ins." Then they might bump you down to the SmartLink app, also provided by BI Industries on an extremely lucrative contract. Their last contract was like two point two billion dollars, and. That SmartLink app is either going to be loaded on your smartphone if you have a smartphone mm -hmm. that can handle it, or you'll be given a smartphone yeah. by ICE and told to use that smartphone to check in. You will be required to check in on a sort of regular schedule. Um, I don't have a strong sense for how often that is. Um, could be daily, could be less. Um, to check in, you're gonna open the app up, it's gonna ping your GPS location, send it to ICE, and then you're gonna take a facial recognition photograph. That photograph will be compared to make sure that you're actually you. That photograph is also potentially capturing your surroundings, the people you live with, whoever's like in the frame. Um, and then you can communicate with your case manager on the app. Um, you can potentially find information on when your immigration court hearings are, that type of thing. Uh, it's the middle level of monitoring. The lowest level of monitoring is voice print based. So basically every once in a while, whatever your 
dedicated check-in time is. You're going to call into ICE on your phone. You're going to say, hi, I'm Jake Wiener. I'm checking in. Um, and ICE will run a voice print analysis and make sure that you are the person you say you are um, and confirm your location. At any point, if that system screws up, you are potentially in you're then in violation of the terms of your release. And at any point, ICE, if you've there's been an error, an ICE officer can show up and take you right back to jail. Let's talk a little bit about that. You've mentioned BI, right? You've both mentioned BI. This is not a government agency, this is a contractor, but potentially they have access to your photograph details of your asylum case and we are we very clear on like certainly with the ice issued phones people seem to have concerns like what is being monitored and what isn't being monitored on the phone right like is it only when they have the app open is everything on their phone now subject to like a review by ice and and potentially also by this third party contractor right so how are those contractors vetting their personnel? How are they making sure that these this very sensitive information is secure and private like it should be? Yeah, I have no idea how they're vetting <laughs> their staff. They are um, not exactly forthcoming. Um, one aspect of the surveillance that I think is worth noting is that both ICE and BI don't just have your, whether you're on the smartphone or <laughs> if you're on the ankle monitor, they don't just have your last GPS ping. They have yes. your historical movements, which means if you're on an ankle monitor, they have a record of every single place you went for the entirety of the time since you've been on that ankle monitor. And they also know where you are right now. A um, little more limited on the smartphone, but that's information that's highly sensitive. Um, your location, and especially your historical location information, can tell you all kinds of things, like what church this person goes to. Have they been to Planned Parenthood recently? Who do they associate with? Like what houses have they visited? And for ICE, that information is very valuable because most migrants don't live alone. They live in community with other people. Some of those people may be undocumented. And so as a migrant, you are now worrying every time you check in, am I exposing someone who's undocumented to ICE surveillance? Am I exposing myself, you know? to just like tagging somewhere that ICE doesn't want me to be. And maybe an officer is going to show up for a check because of that. It is created, creating a ton of insecurity in a system that is already very insecure. Yeah. Um, and the like psychological harms of that are manifest. You know, there's good studies like internationally um, that your risk of suicide and depression goes way up when you're on electronic monitoring, that your access to jobs goes way down. Um, you, you know, there's stigma with wearing an ankle brace. Also concerns that if you take a job, um, you won't be able to check in at your home at the appropriate time. It looks yeah. like you're absconding, right? So this level of monitoring is messing with people's lives in really fundamental and deeply cruel ways. Yeah, definitely. Um, and these like, like you talked about like, sort of how you, how your phone can make you a snitch, uh, like mixed status families are very common right in and especially in, in migrant diasporas so like it could be someone in your family who has a different immigration status from you and to do what you need to do you might be putting that person at risk so it's a very yeah, scary thing to have that that tag on you at all times and like you said like it it's not just where you where you are but where you've been and i if if i'm right like they 
they they keep that data, right? That, that, that data isn't anonymized or sort of like destroyed. They, they can keep that data forever if they want to. Yes, it's, it's inputted into their systems. Um, and that hangs around for, I think the retention period is 75 years. Okay, yeah, great. Depends a little bit. <laughs> yeah. This technology that goes into these, right? There's facial recognition. I know they also have uh, number plate, license plate in America, recognition. Um, they have, uh, the, I'm trying to think uh, which other technologies they have, their cell phone site simulation. Uh, a lot of that can also be transferred to local police agencies, right? Through some of these, like, they're not tech transfer programs, that's the wrong word, but some of these grants and, and programs that ICE and, and DHS more broadly has. Does that mean that local police agencies could also have access to some of this data? Yeah, so I think there's two different types of programs, and it's mm -hmm. worth breaking them apart. Yep. Um, there are grant programs that are providing state and local police with the technology itself, right? That's like yep. money to buy a license plate reader and yep. pop it out in your community. Um, there are, is also the overlap between federal and specialty department of Homeland security, ICE's databases, the systems that they house all of this information in and state and local police, they have their own databases. Those databases are very often linked or are accessible, which means that monitoring, you know, your local police department has a log of everyone they arrest. Yeah. Very often that log is sent to ICE and vice versa, right? So it's uh, one of the main ways that this is done is through fusion centers, which yeah. is uh, basically a federally funded state run technology center um, embedded in state or local police departments where you have Department of Homeland Security agents who have access to their set of databases and state and local police department officers who have access to their set of databases sitting right next to each other. And those people can then talk and be like, yo, I need you to run this search into your system, which is theoretically only for federal use, but suddenly is getting used for state law enforcement and vice versa. One of the biggest problems with this is that cities that want to be sanctuary cities yeah. that don't want their police departments reporting and handing people over to ICE when they arrest mm -hmm. undocumented folks. City government is unable to control their local police departments and the information that is sent to ICE. So even a sensible sanctuary cities where the city says, we're not going to report this information, the way that these databases are tied together, especially license plate reader databases, um, as well, but as well as arrest databases, all sorts of stuff, means that the city government functionally cannot create a sanctuary city. Right. Uh, which is just in, if we talk about my situation, I'm in San Diego, uh, our mayor uh, is terrible. And... Uh, want to turn all our streetlights into spies, right? Like put put little put little cameras on them so that they can uh, watch what we're doing. And like th this information feeds into, we know exactly where the fusion center is. Actually, like I wrote about this in 2020 when the cops took someone's phone and used gray key to crack it open. Um, so like the yeah the exposure for people who in the U.S. who are not citizens of the U.S. is is very high with these things. Um, the last thing about these databases I wanted to talk about was those aren't the only databases that ICE has access to, right? They, can you explain how they've they've managed to acquire some data about other people and, and whether or not that is, strictly speaking, legal? Yeah. So we have a massive problem in America with data brokering, <laughs> which is yes. companies. Um, the, big, the worst are 
LexisNexis and Thomson Reuters Westlaw, uh, but there are hundreds and hundreds of data brokers who vacuum up all of the information that they can off the internet, off of utility records, um, off of publicly available information, and basically make massive databases that are tracking to the best that they can every aspect of people's lives. Um, credit reporting agencies, the people who like give you your credit score are also data brokers. They're mm -hmm. pulling in all this information so that they can assign you your like credit, which is like where yeah. your credit cards are, how much money you have. All this information yeah. is super valuable, right? And it's valuable to advertisers. It's valuable for, yeah, like for marketing, but it's also really valuable for law enforcement. Um, because you have everything from like addresses where people are spending money. Um, often you can pull from advertise like phone advertising data, people's GPS location. And a number of these services have sold access to ICE. Um, both like Thompson Reuters Clear, Lexus Nexus has uh, several products that they sell to ICE, as well as LocateX, which is now Babel Street, um, which is specifically a GPS location company. Um, yeah. And ICE has basically managed to obtain through contracts information that they could not legally obtain through a warrant, right? Which is yeah. to say that if you, a police officer, an ICE officer, want to get information on a single person, you know, you want their GPS location off their phone. You need to go to a court and say, hey, I'm looking for James Stout and mm -hmm. I think that he committed a crime or an immigration or he yeah. broke immigration law. Here's my evidence. I need a warrant. You cannot get a warrant for mass monitoring. That's like a yeah. fundamental part of how the Fourth Amendment in the U.S. Constitution yeah. works is that it has to be individualized or very close to individualized. But there is currently no law that says that ICE can't just go buy the information on the open market and completely evade the warrant requirement. Um, so that's what's going on with LexisNexis, with LocateX, um, as well as some like social media surveillance companies. Right, yeah. They're the same databases that I as a journalist use when I'm uh, in, you know, wondering if this Nazi is still living in this place or, or you know, finding the sons of Confederate veterans to uh, check if they still work at the Citadel University. So I think... A good way to finish this up would be to talk about once you're in, you've gone through this process, right? You've CVP1, you've ATD'd, uh, and you enter into sort of the asylum hearing, or you have your your, your various different asylum processes. Can Austin, can you give us a very broad overview of like the likelihood of success and, and maybe a couple of, I know you're very good at monitoring the factors that determine uh, the likelihood of success of an asylum application through track. And, and this is a great place to plug track if you want to. Um, uh, can you talk about like how likely folks are to uh, to be successful in that asylum application process? Yeah, so we monitor um, this uh, federal data related to immigration and other areas through track, uh, transactional records access clearinghouse at Syracuse University, where I'm at. Um, I'm also a research fellow at American University, so we have a kind of a fun partnership right now looking at different angles of connecting, you know, data to um, to research on Latin American Latino migrants. Um, and so we keep really close track of what's happening with the immigration courts. We don't get data. If you remember earlier, I described those two tracks of seeking asylum. Yeah. We don't currently get data on that 
first track where people go through asylum officers at USCIS um, were interested in it, um, but they actually publish not comprehensive, but they publish decent amount of data. Um, we would certainly like to get more, but it's the immigration courts that we have focused very heavily on for the last decade, I would say. And so we get very detailed granular data from the immigration courts on a monthly basis that allows us to see exactly what's happening. I would say currently, um, the success rate, denial rate, however you want to put it, in immigration court for asylum seekers is about 52 or 53% get denied, about 47 to 48% um, are granted asylum. Um, but that varies widely by immigration court and by nationality. So um, migrants from Central America, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala tend to have much higher denial rates, 70, 80%, 90%. Um, whereas um, nationals from, let's say, uh, Ukraine, uh, uh, China, um, some other countries, uh, Cuba, have very high success rates. Haiti, actually, is a good example of a country that has very low grant rates, very high denial rates, yes. um, even though uh, much like northern Mexico, uh, where we actually send people that we deport very often, there are all kinds of travel warnings. You know, the United States government does not want people going to Haiti because it's too dangerous, but we don't seem to have a problem deporting people back there who are seeking asylum, right? Um, and so that's what that's what we've seen in recent years. The denial rate was as high as 70% during the Trump administration. Um, and so it's certainly much better under the Biden administration. I do want to say, though, that in addition to sort of uh, uh, policy-related um, issues that may drive this factor, geographic concerns. Uh, people are much more successful in New York City than, say, Houston or Atlanta, Georgia. Um, but uh, one of the really important factors here is, in addition to all of that, um, there's a threshold question, which is a lot of people, including a lot of people who are recently arriving to the United States, um, if they can't get an attorney, it's very unlikely that they will even be able to file an asylum application in the first place. So that 50, you know, that, that 48% yes. grant rate is for people who file an asylum application. We're, we're not seeing, you know, the people who don't even, who aren't even able to file an asylum application in the first place. And one of the most concerning things, uh, recent developments is that the Biden administration, I think, not for no reason at all. I mean, there's 2.2 million pending cases in the immigration courts right now. The Biden administration is trying to push cases through faster. This is something the Obama administration tried, Trump administration tried it, Biden administration tried it. And every single time the cases get accelerated, um, including a large number of family cases, unfortunately, they simply don't have time to get an attorney and file a good asylum application. So what we're seeing is in addition to like geography, nationality, does someone get an attorney? Mm -hmm. It's also speed, just how mm -hmm. fast the cases go through. And the reality is um, if, if you try to force an asylum case through the immigration courts, or frankly, even through USAIS in a matter of weeks, um, people are just not going to win. You, you can't, you can't speed things up and maintain a fair system. You just can't. It's also not great for people to wait, you know, five, six, seven, eight years for a hearing or for a conclusion. So that's not ideal either. But, you know, trying to force cases through and, you know, two or three months is just doesn't work. Yeah, I've spoken to people. I spoke to a friend a couple of weeks ago who was saying that now he's seeing people newly arrived. He's been in the United States for a few years. 
gone through the process, but he's seeing people come in and the, the amount to pay for a lawyer if they want to get a private lawyer is going up. And like if people only have a few months or don't have the right to work, there's just no way for them to obtain that much money. Um, and then the people who are doing it sort of, uh, I guess, sort of in, for nonprofits uh, are just overwhelmed by, by the amount of demand. So yeah, those, those people are in a really tough situation. Yeah, I think we should talk a little bit about the <laughs> fundamental unfairness of this system. Yep. Um, so like immigration judges are administrative law judges. They are not like real judges um, approved by Congress. They are hired by an administrative agency, which effectively means that there are much lower bars to who can be an administrative law judge. <laughs> um, you also, as, a, as an immigrant, do not have a right to an attorney sitting in front of an administrative law judge. And one of the things that the data throws out is that in every aspect of the system, having an attorney is the strongest indicator of a good result. So that's like how likely people are to know about their appointments. It's actually extremely hard if you are someone who does not speak English and yeah. has you know limited money and limited access to the system. And frankly, uh, does not understand how the American immigration law system works, which is reasonable because virtually no one understands how it works. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's really difficult to know like when you have a court date, much less to show up and to understand what kind of information that you need to collect and present to a judge that will be convincing to this person, who again is not an Article Three judge that's been appointed by Congress, not the type of judges that you or I would have heard our cases heard by if we were arrested um, or if we just like filed a lawsuit. Um, and so access to a judge is like the number one best indicator for whether your asylum claim is going to be successful or not, mm -hmm. or any kind of claim in the immigration system, frankly. Um, and we do not provide that to people who don't have yeah. the money to hire a lawyer. Yeah. Which is fundamentally unjust, right? We also, there's like not a guarantee that you'll have a quality translator. <laughs> yes, yeah. And you'll be able to show up to court and at all understand what is happening in your legal case, um, which is a huge barrier to be able to get a good result, to be able to communicate who you are and why you are, will not be safe if you are deported from the country. Right. Yeah, we heard that in, in May where there were like, they were basically asking if anyone could come and help trans, like migrant advocacy groups, you know, does someone speak Comanji? Does someone speak Turkish? Uh, does you know does does someone speak Vietnamese? Could they come down and help this person with their initial interview? Which it's it's just not a uh, not a just or even reasonable way to do these things. But yeah, that that's where it's at right now. I guess I think most people probably aren't aware of of much of that. So it's good to explain how fundamentally unjust it is. So where if people want to learn more about this, if people want to follow along, I know you both do some writing online. Uh, where can they find you and where can they find more of your writing about this? Yeah, so um, you can find my writing on the Electronic Privacy Information Center or Epic's website, that is epic.org. Um, you can find me and my 150 followers on Twitter <laughs> at, um, at real Jake Wiener. That's W-I-E-N-E-R. Um, and Hopefully in the near future, you'll be able to find some scholarship for me as well. Oh, cool. Yeah. Using the Donald Trump Twitter format. Great. Uh, how about you, Austin? Where can people find you? You have many more followers on twitter.com. 
Yeah, uh, so uh, it's Austin Coker. Last name is K O C H E R. Uh, the peculiarity of that name is in my favor because you know pretty easy to search. But um, actually, this is great timing. I just had an article published this week, detailed one on CBP one. It's called "Glitches in the Digitization of Asylum." Um, it's an academic article, but uh, it is open access, so there's no paywall there. "Glitches in the Digitization of Asylum." It's also up on my Twitter page. I'm on Twitter at AC Coker, so A-C-K-O-C-H-E-R. And I also write pretty regularly on Substack. Um, and I, that's like a weird thing to say. I'm slightly embarrassed to mention it, <laughs> except that I'm not because uh, this <laughs> academic article emerged actually out of stuff that I was initially exploring on Substack. So I really I loved that uh, format for writing because it's given me a chance to work out concepts and ideas before they even... Yeah. go into like peer review print. So some if people want to get ahead of the curve on what I'm thinking, um, go check that out too. Nice. And don't Great. forget to visit track, T-R-A-C dot S-Y-R dot E-D-U to get mm-hmm. all kinds of data on immigration courts, alternatives to detention, detention statistics, and so forth. Yeah, I like track. There's a Telegram channel as well, right? It's like the only time I can go on Telegram and not see dead people. So I appreciate it for that. That's right. We we put stuff out on Telegram and WhatsApp too. Uh, so if you don't want to have to be on Twitter, if you don't want to have to get an email on something like that, you just want to get a little, if you like some of those other messaging platforms, we have announcement threads on there. You can't interact. Uh, you just you just get the little notification, but um, we, try to, we try to diversify as much as possible, especially with the uh, muscification of Twitter. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably a good move. Thank you very much for your time, both of you. I really appreciate it. That was very insightful. Thank you, James. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. Now, this is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. If you ever felt like you were always too much this while also never being enough that, this is the podcast for you. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth issues affecting the Latin community, and much more via my own personal stories, along with interviews with inspiring thought leaders from our community. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community that you need to know. So much of what makes our community so beautiful is our diversity, yet too often those of us who don't fit into this dumb, stereotypical box of whatever it means to be Latino are left without a voice or just forgotten about. On this show, I celebrate the uniqueness of our culture 
culture and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. It could happen here. Uh, it, it's me, James, and Shireen today. Hi, Shireen. Hi, James. Hi, it's Shireen. Yeah, it's it's lovely to, to have you. <laughs> Thanks for introducing yourself. <laughs> I was a little confused about who I was talking to. I, uh, <laughs> I've done podcasts for a long time, and I never actually know how to introduce myself. But I'm really happy to be doing this episode with you because you're a very good episode mm. partner. Oh, thank you, Shireen. I am also happy to be doing this episode with you. I think you're an excellent episode partner. Uh, what are we talking you don't have about, to say that Just because I said it. Yeah, no, I, I do. Um, I like them. It's good. It's good. <laughs> we, do, do, we we help people learn things. Um. Well, today you're going to learn some more things about Palestine. It's been a minute since we had an update, and I mean, surprise, surprise, things aren't good. Um. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about some recent yeah. stuff that's been happening. There's. We mentioned some stuff that we've mentioned before in other episodes, like the Nakba or um, just the ethnic cleansing that happened in 1948. Um, also some politics stuff. So if you are interested in getting more detail and you haven't listened to those, I would recommend listening to those just for more context if you desire. But yeah. Yeah, I think you're diving in probably at the deep end if you start here, but we're going to dive in at the deep end. So earlier this month, Omar Katten, 27, a father of two children, who worked as an electrician for the local municipality, was killed when about 400 Israeli settlers marched down Tormasaya's main road, setting cars, homes, crops and trees ablaze as they went. It's not clear if he was shot by IDF troops or settlers, as both stormed the village carrying weapons. Under international law, Israeli settlements are illegal. However, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announced plans to build a 1,000 new housing units in the settlement of Eli, in response to the deadly shooting of four Israelis by two Palestinian gunmen on Tuesday, the 20th of June. The suspected assailants were later killed. One of them was quote-unquote neutralised by a civilian, uh, the other by the IDF. But it appears the plan is to punish the whole nation again. Our answer to terror is to strike it hard and to build our country, Netanyahu said. His right-wing government is dominated by settler leaders and supporters, and his statements came just days after the government gave far-right finance minister Bezalel Smotrich sweeping powers to expedite the construction of illegal settlements, bypassing measures that have been in place for almost 27 years. The violence in Tormosaya... Am I saying that right? I just looked it up. Um, yeah, yeah Tormosaya uh, is a it's, a... it's a town in the West Bank, for context, people that don't know. Um, 
So yeah, it's it's in the Ramola and uh, El Bire governor in the West Bank. Yeah, and we're going to get a little bit more into it, why this is all happening. We just wanted to kind of paint the paint the picture for you, uh, first of all, of like the big events that have happened, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. So this violence against the people of this town and the shooting of four Israelis followed an incursion by the IDF and Israeli border forces into the Janine refugee camp. Um, it was an operation on a scale not seen for decades. Soldiers used tear gas, stun grenades and an attack helicopter. Seven Palestinians were killed, nearly 100 were wounded. And I feel like this is not the first time, if you've been following any Palestinian yeah. news, that you've heard of Janine, the refugee camp, or... That is being attacked. It might sound familiar. I'll get into it more later. But Shireen Abu Akleh was actually killed while reporting there. So I want to get into just why exactly Israel keeps raiding the Janine refugee camp in particular. And I want to talk about the camp's history, why it's getting targeted, and why the latest raid was different than the ones before it. Janine is slowly becoming a symbol of Palestinian resistance. It was originally established in 1953 to house Palestinians who were ethnically cleansed during the Nakba of 1948, which forced some 750,000 people from their homes in order to make way for the establishment of Israel. And again, we've talked about this in other episodes, if you want to revisit those, but essentially it was just a very horrific example of ethnic cleansing and massacres and genocide and displacement. So... The camp has seen much unrest over the decades, and it was nearly destroyed in 2002 when Israeli soldiers ambushed it during the Second Intifada. According to a Human Rights Watch investigation, at least 52 Palestinians, including women and children, were killed during this period of time in 2002 during the Second Intifada. There were also at least 23 Israeli soldiers killed and several others injured that were reported. And since then, Janine has recently seen intensifying attacks by Israeli forces, especially since 2021, and it has slowly, along with Gaza, become a major symbol of Palestinian resistance. At this point, Palestinians are really fed up with the inaction of the Palestinian Authority, the PA, which is the government entity meant to oversee and quote-unquote protect the Palestinians within its governance. The Palestinian Authority was formed in 1994 following the Gaza-Jericho Agreement between the PLO and the government of Israel, and it was only intended to be a five-year interim body. Further negotiations were then meant to take place between the two parties regarding its final status. According to the Oslo Accords, the Palestinian Authority was designated to have exclusive control over both security-related and civilian issues in the Palestinian urban areas, which are referred to as Area A, and only Palestinian control over Palestinian rural areas, which is called Area B. The remainder of the territories, including Israeli settlements, the Jordan Valley region, and bypass roads between Palestinian communities, were to remain under Israeli control, aka Area C. East Jerusalem was excluded from the Accords. Negotiations with several Israeli governments had resulted in the authority gaining further control in some areas, but that control was then lost in some areas when Israel retook several strategic positions during the Second Intifada. At this point, the Palestinian Authority is an authoritarian regime that has not held elections in over 15 years, and it doesn't really stand in the way of the Israeli government and the crimes they commit. 
So what concerns Israel is that in Janine and elsewhere, young Palestinians are increasingly taking up arms because they see no other way out of the pressure of occupation, and they're very disillusioned with the ineffectiveness of the Palestinian Authority. Yeah, I think that's a really important way to, like, when we talk about, like, especially Palestinian people uh, taking up arms, right, or especially these these new groups which have come in the last, like, couple of years, right, Um there's that Lion's Den group. I think they're more from mm-hmm. like Nablus. Um, Janine Brigades is another one. Uh, it, it's in the context of like government failure or state failure. Uh, like in, I guess when we look at like the formation of states, right? When the, there's, uh, the, it's called social contract theory, right? The idea that when we when we they go and and consent, which we don't do. Uh, we we don't ever like we don't have a chance to consent to being in a state, right? Like very obviously, mm-hmm. if you're from Palestine, you're aware of this. Um, like we we're supposed to give up some of our freedom and get some security, but the the Palestinian Authority has repeatedly failed to protect people in in Janine, right, and in lots of other places too. And so, like this response like this this response of taking up arms is in the context of state failure right like people are trying to protect their own communities when there's been a complete failure by the people who are supposed to protect them the people who are and that's both the pa and then like the broader like the international community is kind of a pointless phrase it doesn't really mean anything but um mm-hmm. like international law is also a pointless phrase it doesn't really mean anything yeah. uh which i i um I'm getting too far afield here, but like the amount of times people in my replies on Twitter will be like, this is against international law. And like, are you going to go and fucking enforce it then? Like, do yeah. you agree? Like, as if that matters at that point. Yeah. It's just like a, it doesn't yeah. matter. Like, we know it's bad. Like, I don't, like, that's not what's up for debate. What's up for debate is what the fuck are you going to do about it? How are you going to stop it? And like, mm-hmm. these people have decided that the way they're going to stop it is by taking up arms. And like, evidently, Israel sees them as terrorists. Um, evidently there are some groups inside Palestine who have killed civilians and done shit, which is, is, you know, like it, it not very nice. Um, it, also the IDF kills civilians all the time, right? Um, one of them is funded and armed by your taxes. Um, and so like, it, yeah, it's, it's an understandable response. And, and the response of the IDF is to sort of, paint the whole of Janine as harboring quote-unquote terrorists right um which mm-hmm. which is and then to do these attacks which often cause civilian casualties which is not that distinct from suggesting that Israel is a terrorist state right and, and then attacking Israel which like but one of these things is more broadly condemned as terrorism and one is is not as broadly mm-hmm. condemned as terrorism and then they're not to to my eye that morally different i guess yeah that makes sense i agree and i also think no it makes a lot of sense i think remembering the imbalance that it starts at is so important because palestine has no army it's not backed by any rich ass nation it's not trained by anything and it's an extremely unbalanced quote-unquote battle no one's deploying an apache helicopter when when the uh, the idf killer journalist right like exactly and yeah, like Shireen Abu Akhli was a U.S. citizen. Not that it matters, but it should matter just in the idea of what the U.S. can do or like the outrage it can have. But it doesn't do anything. Yeah, um, as a journalist who goes to dangerous places and is a U.S. citizen now, like it, it's fucking 
infuriating and, and mm-hmm. obviously like I don't particularly think that like you know like daddy government is coming to save me I'm not like you know if, you, if right. you're laboring under that illusion you're probably a, a little bit naive but um it, it is just incredibly frustrating to see the value of, of some quote-unquote American lives like it, it's it, it, it's it's always wrong to shoot journalists of course but like it's just the u.s basically condoning that it is yeah it's, as as it, again this isn't the first fucking uh like arab journalist that the u.s mm-hmm. who is a u.s citizen who has been killed by an authoritarian regime that the u.s has done fuck all about yeah no i i think it's just a slap in the face for her family and just the entire community of like both arabs and journalists and that crossover there but I did want to mention just the terrorism acts on both sides are obviously terrible. Yeah. I just think you have to remember where they started and the imbalance that is there, especially if the entity that is supposed to protect the Palestinians isn't doing shit. And the only way Palestinians can fight back or yeah. defend themselves is with violence. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's just frustrating when people... <laughs> Point out the yeah. violence on just the Palestinian side, and we'll we'll get into the news version of what that means yeah. and the biases of what that means in a little bit. But yeah, I just that's just explaining exactly why these groups have risen. Yeah, there's um okay, just to be an absolute fucking dweeb for a second, the introduction to Wretched of the Earth that Jean Paul Sartre wrote. It's a Franz Fanon book. is is fantastic when talking about violence and violence in the decolonial process and like how. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's very nice that these colonial states, apartheid states like Israel, um, speak in the language of rights, yeah, and they encourage the colonized people to make their claims in the language of rights. But every time they fucking do, they get met with violence, right? Like, mm-hmm. and it, it is entirely understandable that when the state speaks to you only in violence, you will reply using the same language that is spoken to you with, right? Like that. Yeah. That is that is how uh, how decolonial struggles have been right from algeria to vietnam to palestine um and like it, this isn't a particularly like under theorized concept like it, it's there in fanon in the 1960s um and that's always something i like to suggest people read i think it's a very good kind of distillation of, of what's occurring yeah no i like that you mentioned that because it does seem like that this is like a Palestinian problem that they have, that they are violent and that they hate the other side. And it is just another good example of the effects of colonialism and like that's the, the, the occupied people and their only choice of like retaliation. Anyway, I don't want to get into that too much, but I, that, I do want to emphasize why exactly that they were disillusioned, the Palestinian youth, especially during this time, because the IDF has been extremely violent and the PA still is really inactive and doesn't do anything. So that's kind of the reason why there. Yeah. Yeah. We have a little more on Shireen Abouakli if you want to. Oh yeah. I have a, we have an episode about her, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, yeah. And I'm going to mention her a little bit here. The Jenin refugee camp, it houses armed fighters and they're from several factions, but this means Israelis, they consider it a hub for what they call terrorist activity rather than resistance. So the entire camp is then dubbed a terrorist site. Yeah. But most of the people that the IDF has killed 
are not engaging in any sort of violent activity, and in some cases, they are clearly marked as press, wearing a bulletproof vest and a helmet, like Al Jazeera journalist Sharina Buakle for one. She was shot dead by an Israeli sniper in May 2022, and in her case, the IDF said they were aiming at armed Palestinians who were shooting at them and responding with fire. And after... I don't know, a lot of inconclusive uh, proof and the IDF sticking to that story, a ballistics analysis proved that that story wasn't true and there was no fire coming from the other side. But regardless, no one cares about that. And this happened all in Janine. So I think it's very clear why this camp has become a symbol of resistance simply because the atrocities that have happened there are tremendous and they keep fighting back. And I think it's a example of how exactly a Palestinian uh, symbol comes to be, like Gaza, like this, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I wanted to include a quote from the Israeli military spokesman Ran Kuchov. Um, He told Army Radio, which I guess is not exactly a kind of neutral arbiter here, uh, that she was filming and working for a media outlet amidst armed Palestinians. They were armed with cameras, if you will permit me to say so, which like... No, like we should not we should absolutely not fucking permit someone because like, you know, I, I'll go to all kinds of dangerous spots with a camera. Like I've never fucking shot someone with a camera because it's a fucking camera, right? Like it doesn't, it doesn't, that's not what cameras do. They, they take videos. They, that they is are, the most, like, I can't believe that's an actual quote that someone yeah, but, said and got away with. Yeah, what the fuck is wrong? Like, what? And it's just incorrect operation of the human brain to to use the fucking phrase "arm with camera." Like, what is wrong with you? Uh, yeah. Like, it, it, it's I don't know. People got really people got really mad briefly when Russians were shooting journalists in Ukraine in in the start of the conflict, uh, and like the. I guess they were kind of as mask off about this, but like, yeah, it's, it's a fucking camera. If if your security is threatened by someone filming the shit that you do. It's because you shouldn't be doing it and you know you shouldn't be doing it, mm-hmm. right? Like, and again, like, I've experienced that, like, people, people, you know, doing stuff they don't want to be filmed are getting mad that I'm filming it. But, like, maybe if you're not prepared to defend what you're doing, you shouldn't be doing it. You don't, yeah. uh, you know, you don't suggest that the camera is, the camera is, it's a neutral object here. It's, it's not the camera yeah. that shot a woman in the head. Yeah, I mean... The, the, that sentence is infuriating the more <laughs> yes. I look at it. Yeah. The fact that literally it says they were amidst armed Palestinians. And then you could you could stop there and people can just like click out and read and like yeah. move on with their day thinking that they had fucking guns. And the next sentence is literally they're armed with cameras. Like, are you, I don't know. That's just so infuriating to me that that's like a real yeah, thing yeah. that was said and accepted. It seems to be like almost deliberately insulting or, or yeah. I don't know, like it's definitely an attack on like, I, I don't know if you're a journalist and, and you don't see that as an attack on all of us, then, you know, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe examine your biases, I guess. Yeah. And then the ballistics analysis that I mentioned earlier, uh, where she was, sh- it showed that where she was shot, there were several targeted shots, one of which hit her head because there were shots in the tree that was behind her. So she was clearly targeted. Yeah. Because she was shot by a sniper out the back of one of their APCs, right? They have a little, little um, like murder hole, uh, and she was shot from two hundred meters away, which is not very far with a magnified sight. And like, yeah, you don't just—it uh, wouldn't look like that, I guess. Like three little holes behind where her head was suggests that someone fired like single shots targeted, not just like spraying and yeah. spraying bullets around. Yeah, 
I don't want to talk about it too much because there it is that's not the topic of yeah. this episode. But I do want to just say that I think it's so ironic that the IDF is supposed to be this, mo- this advanced military body, this highly trained thing, and then at the same in the same breath, their defense is sometimes they made a mistake. Oops, you know what I mean? Like they made this grave mistake. They thought she was carrying a gun or she was around people with guns. I just think that's a very silly. Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm being sure that it's scary. Can be true, I suppose. And you can yeah. you can make mistakes, but if if you make mistakes, you own them. You could still be like, oh yeah, we 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 100 fucked up, and like we need to examine yeah. how we fucked up. You know, uh, yeah, that's just no. their defense. So many times it gets really fucking mm-hmm. old. But yeah. okay, before we continue and talk about the recent attack in Janine, let's take our first break, and we'll be right back. And we're back. Let's go back to talk about the latest raid on the Janine refugee camp. The Israeli army launched its latest raid on the Janine refugee camp in the early hours of Monday, June 19th. Five people, including a 15-year-old, were dead by the time it withdrew its forces in the afternoon. Others died the following day because of their injuries. Several journalists were shot at, and they were surrounded and one was injured. This raid ironically took place near the location where Shireen Abu Akli was killed. Several ambulances were also fired upon with live ammunition, and at first they were denied access to the injured, which is nothing new to the IDF. They do this consistently, but they block uh, medical aid to reach the people that are injured. The Israeli army said the raid was to arrest two suspects, one of whom was a former Palestinian prisoner, Asim Abu al-Hajjah, who was the son of an imprisoned Hamas leader. I just want a quick reminder, a refresh. I know I say this in most of the episodes about Palestine, especially the ones I've done in the beginning of this year. But in 2022, Israeli forces killed more than 170 Palestinians, including at least 30 children, in occupied East Jerusalem and in the West Bank. And this is described as the deadliest year for Palestinians and those living in those areas since 2006. Since the start of 2023, Israeli forces have killed at least 160 Palestinians, including 26 children. And it's June. The death toll includes 36 Palestinians killed by the Israeli army during a four-day assault on the besieged Gaza Strip between May 9th and May 13th of this year. I just want to put that into context because if 2022 was the deadliest year for Palestinians in the last 20 years, and we're essentially already there by six months into this new year, it's just it's really disturbing and it's really heartbreaking that it's truly, there's no slowing down. And this raid is a great example of them just like upping the ante. And what was different about this raid? Israeli offenses into Janine are nothing new, but it appeared that the raiding soldiers were caught off guard this time. Shortly after the raid began, videos showed an Israeli military panther APC being hit with a roadside improvised explosive device. And there is a video of this. I haven't seen it because I, I just personally don't want to. But it's there if you choose to see it. Military helicopters then began shooting and launching rockets and flares while surveillance aircraft hovered above. It was the first time in 20 years that Israel deployed helicopter gunships in the West Bank. By the end of the raid, reports suggested that at least five Israeli military vehicles had been damaged by explosive devices and bullets deployed by armed Palestinians. This was the first time the IDF was met with this understandable degree of resistance and defense in Janine, and their response was overwhelming in return. 
Hi everyone, it's James and Shireen again, and we're here today for a little update. It's the 3rd of July as we're recording this, just because there's been a significantly larger IDF incursion into the Janine refugee camp, and because we know this is coming out at the end of the week, we wanted to make sure you had a little bit more up-to-date information. Uh, so... As best I can kind of piece it together, what happened is that some Israeli military vehicles were hit with an IED. It's a, it's a bomb, right? Roadside bomb, improvised explosive device. And Israel responded by going fully ham uh, on a scale that we haven't really seen since the, the second intifada. Uh, so there's air attacks, drones, helicopters, armored vehicles. I saw them using like a, an anti-tank missile against a house. So videos of uh, armored bulldozers tearing up roads mm -hmm. in the camp, and Matt, like perhaps Shireen, you could kind of give a scale of what this has done—not just to roads, obviously, but to the people who live there. Yeah, like James was saying, they're continuing to attack with drones and rockets, and the Janine refugee camp is very densely populated. It has about twenty thousand people, and they are targeting infrastructure like homes and roads. And the mayor of Janine. Nidal Obaidi, he said the attack was a real massacre and an attempt to wipe out all aspects of life inside the city and the camp. Those being targeted now are not just the resistance fighters, but civilians are being killed and wounded as well. And water and electricity services have also been cut off from the camp since the attack has started. And the Palestine Red Crescent said that at least 3,000 people were evacuated from the camp. Yeah, and then as far as like at time of recording, which is Monday afternoon, eight people have been killed. Uh, one more person was killed in Ramallah. Uh, the two youngest victims were identified as Nurdin Hassam Yusuf Mashud, who was 15, and 17-year-old Majidi Yonis Saud Ararawi. Uh, so both of them like under 18, but the oldest person was 23. So these are all very young people, uh, sadly dead now. Um, and then they estimate that the Palestinian Red Crescent estimates that 3,000 people have left the camp, which mm -hmm. I think like paints a picture of like emptying or, or cleaning or whatever colonial sort of uh, word you want to use to make it seem less brutal than it is, but like like emptying the space of human beings so that, that it can be colonized or that other folks can move there, right? Like, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh in, in addition to some some places are saying eight have died, some people some places are saying nine. But uh, regardless, there are over a hundred people that are injured, and so I don't know. The fact that the oldest person was only twenty three years old should really paint the picture of like who exactly is being targeted and killed, because there's no way their defense of targeting terrorists can play here, even though it probably does in the long run. But I just I think it's really fucked up and unfair. Uh, the White House, meanwhile, said the United States, quote, supports Israel's security and right to defend its people against Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and other terrorist groups. And they also highlighted the need to protect non-combatants, which hasn't happened. And none of those people are actually being targeted or no, there's nothing to defend at this point. I really don't. Um, I don't know. I, it's just, I'm yeah, at a loss. It's also weird that. I don't know. Like, it just seems such a knee-jerk response. So maybe this yeah. is just me being being a dweeb or whatever. But like, uh, like at least one of the IEDs was was uh, like claimed by Janine Brigades. I think the one 
earlier last week. But yeah. like, to call out groups by name, like, and then not call out the group who are claiming responsibility for at mm-hmm. least one of these attacks, it's, it's, it just seems so like uh, okay, like press play on the tape. Um, yeah, they're also naming things that people are probably more familiar with, like almost, almost to like justify or like entice fear of being like, oh my god, yeah, Hamas attack Hamas or whatever they yeah. think will happen with that response. Um, and the international response, yeah, the international response has also been dog shit. Surprise, surprise. Um, it's because it's always just talk and nothing really happens. Um, Turkey's foreign ministry voice is deep concern over the attack. They warned that it can trigger a new spiral of violence. It already has. And they called the Israeli incursion a heinous crime. Qatar uh, stressed that the need for international community to move urgently to protect the Palestinian people um, was very necessary. And then Jordan condemned the escalation as a violation of international humanitarian law, which Israel has been breaking for years. So nothing has happened. And then Egypt, on the other hand, it warned of serious repercussions and it called on other international people to intervene. And then uh, the UN said that the situation is very dangerous. Like all these things I think have already been said every time. That's why I just think it's so empty. And I don't know. I, I Nothing... If it's just words and no actions, like how are we how are we supposed to even take anything seriously? I guess I don't know. Yeah, it's the uh, it's the thoughts and prayers of the yeah, exactly. like, international. Like it, the UN is always deeply concerned, but it, it never does fuck all, right? So, yeah, I guess to wrap up, um, we should talk about like what this means for like, Janine as a as a place or like as a community. Yeah, we mentioned this in our previous recording last week, um, but Israel's attacks on Janine are part of an effort to crush resistance with young Palestinians that are increasingly taking up arms because they're disillusioned with the PA. And according to analysts, Israel's hard-right government is likely to continue its heavy-handed approach toward Palestinians in the West Bank. Palestinian lawyer and analyst Diana Batu said, Israel wants to do whatever it can to crush Janine and any other form of resistance. Israel has made it clear that there are three options available for Palestinians. Option one is to leave. Option two is to remain as residents, but not as citizens of any state. And option three is if you resist, we are going to crush you. This is what they are implementing. Yeah, yeah, I think that's well said. Yeah. Hassan Ayoub, who is a Palestinian political science professor at N. Najah National University in Nablus, he agreed with the lawyer's statement and he said, the end game is to make Palestinians give up any hope of achieving self-determination or being recognized as a people. Janine has a long history of resistance. It is a model for the masses that Israel wants to eliminate. But for Palestinians, the question is a matter of principle and their end game is to end this occupation. And essentially, Israel intends to crush what Ayub referred to as, quote, the Janine phenomenon or any form of Palestinian resistance. Um, yeah, the Israeli aggression it raised fears of an escalation that continues to happen uh, in areas such as the Gaza Strip, because that's another symbolic place of resistance for Palestinians. And yeah, that's where we are now. That's pretty much it. Uh, we'll... Well, uh, I reached out to some people I know, but people generally don't like to be on their phones when this stuff is happening. So uh, maybe yeah. we'll update you with some more information. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, <laughs> updates like this are always kind of like uh, 
unfortunate because I don't think we want to update that more shitty things are happening, but especially with stuff like this, uh, it doesn't seem like Israel is going to back down anytime soon. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the update. Okay. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about, um, some of the people who were killed. One of the people who was killed was Amjad Aref Aljas. Uh, he was 48. His son, age 22, was killed in the Janine massacre that occurred in January this year. I should kind of give you a sense of like the risk that I guess one incurs unwillingly by existing in what is a fucking mm-hmm. refugee camp. His son wasn't the only uh, young person killed. Another person who was killed was Sadil Najhar Nahia. Uh, she was 15. And uh, a few days later, her classmates attended her funeral, uh, all in their school uniforms. Uh, it's pretty sad. Uh, there are obviously images of it if you want to go look them up, but you can see lots of little schoolgirls burying their friend in a town which is covered in in burned detritus. Right? It, it, it's I don't know, no one should have to bury their kids. It, it's a horrible. Kids shouldn't have to deal with this shit. Um, but there are plenty of pictures of little schoolgirls standing by her grave. It, it's it's awful. Um, so horrible. Yeah. Uh, the other victims were identified as Ahmed Saka, Ahmed Darakma, Khaled Dawish, Kasim Faisal Abu Syria. Uh, they were 15, 19, 21, 19, and 29, respectively. The day after this occurred, the aforementioned attack on settlers in Eli took place. Two gunmen shot into a gas station or restaurant. One was killed on the scene, and one was killed later. It was a response to the massive attack on to Messiah that occurred a few days before. And I want to highlight how the NYT covered this because I think it's important to like dissect how Palestine is covered by the US, right? Because obviously the US is one of the biggest state supporters of Israel and, and specifically one of the people who continues to equip the IDF to do this stuff, right? Um, so I'm quoting here directly. Last week, two Palestinians killed four Israelis and injured four others near the Eli settlement, escalating month-long violence between Palestinians and Israelis in the West Bank. The next day, some 400 settlers descended on several Palestinian villages, including Tulmasaya, a prosperous town near Ramallah, where reportedly they torched cars and homes. That I want to, I want to stop right there because it is not reportedly right. Like it, we we do not have to qualify this with like maybe or like we've just seen this on twitter.com like you could probably see this shit on google maps right like like they torched a town there's there's massive damage done even the new york times itself didn't qualify it as as a reported incident in in its own reporting uh and this isn't we don't hear the same thing with the the two palestinian government right uh, just to read the first opening sentence again, last week, two Palestinian terrorists killed four Israelis. It's just stated as a fact, right? And and these, just within those couple of sentences, you can see so much of, of the bias in the way this is reported, so much of the, the different perspectives through which state violence... I would encourage people not to use terrorism. I would encourage them to see things, especially in this context, in terms of political violence right there is political violence done by both sides one of those sides is a state actor the other side is a non-state actor but but qualifying one and then making it distinct from the other i think 
it's shoddy journalism it, 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 and, and I don't think it really helps us understand this situation. Um, so what happened, right? Like 15 homes were burned, 60 vehicles were burned and, and the, the writers sort of quote unquote sort of saying this is reportedly. It's not, it's true. It's a thing that really happened. Another kind of phrasing that I've found really objectionable in this instance is, is clashes, right? Like often you'll see clashes in Janine uh, and like, that casts a a lens of parity, or like it looks at these things through a lens of parity, which I don't think is is real on the ground. Like, it it's not a clash when a helicopter is firing uh, rockets, even if it is firing rockets at people with Kalashnikovs, right? Like that does not it's not a clash. There's there's not really a parity there, right? Like, and it it's it also kind of downplays the violence of what's happening, right? It's an attack. It's an assault. Uh, I think this constant use of clashes right it, it's nearly always you don't really see it used anywhere else of if you mm-hmm. if you do it's for it's for much less severe violence like like clashes between I don't know, rival football fans not that that can't be very violent mm-hmm. it can but it, you don't really see this word used to characterize like state violence on this scale anywhere else and um, and so i would really encourage people when they're reading especially coverage of this right which is an issue that the us cannot get its head out of its ass about uh, to look for this biased language. And if you're reading coverage or anything else, right, if you're, if you're reading coverage of something and you start to notice that, like, I would perhaps question where you're getting your coverage from. And I know you mm-hmm. had some shit to say about the New York Times, Shereen. I mean, yeah, I, I one, really like what you said about referring to it as state violence versus terrorism, because I think that's a huge point that I also want to adopt because I didn't even really transfer that over until just now when you said it. And I think it's a really important distinction. So thank you for that. But yeah, the New York Times, as well as many, if not most news organizations, they're incredibly biased when it comes to Palestine Israel reporting. And the New York Times in particular has been absolute dog shit in their coverage of Palestine for quite a while now. There has been a persistent pattern of bias when it comes to Israel and Palestine. I'm going to go in chronological order and then James will uh, jump back in with the recent article about the New York Times and this mm-hmm. terrible thing that it has within it that I'm not going to give away right now. But let's go back in time to February 2011 when the New York Times published a piece on JVP activism in the Bay Area. JVP stands for Jewish Voices for Peace. And this article said, the activists say they are not working against Israel, but against the Israeli government policies they believe are discriminatory, which is, yes, correct. But in the editor's note, The Times later wrote that one of the article's two authors was a pro-Palestinian advocate and that he should not have written the article and should not have been allowed to write it. So it initially seems like good reporting because it's true. You're you're, uh, protesting against the Israeli government. But then to say that a Palestinian advocate can't write it is ridiculous. So fuck you, New York Times. And then in 2015... A study was done analyzing the New York Times publications during the period of September 10th and October 14th in 2015. At the time of the study in 2015, 2,000 Palestinians had been injured, while 83 Israelis were injured, just for context of what the reporting was about. And the study analyzed 36 articles. In these articles, the New York Times talked about Palestinian quote-unquote violence 36 times and Israeli violence two times. 
The word attack was used to describe Palestinian actions 110 times and Israeli actions 17 times. They used the word terrorist 42 times to refer to Palestinian violence and one time, one time, to refer to Israeli violence. More than half of the New York Times headlines during that whole year depicted Palestinians as the instigators of violence. Zero headlines depicted Israelis as aggressors. None. And nothing has changed. I know that's from a a period in 2015, but that's basically consistent, if not more so prevalent now. It just seems like the New York Times editorial board refuses to incorporate Palestinian perspective into its editorials, even though there have been many calls to do so. And this leads it to fundamentally misread the reality on the ground in Palestine, and it clearly shows the newspaper's bias when it comes to what it chooses to include about Palestine and from whom. Of the 2,490 opinion pieces about Palestinians that the New York Times published between 1970 and 2019, only 46 were written by actual Palestinians, which is an average of less than 2%. With the lack of Palestinian and Arab columnists that are even employed by the New York Times, a kind of groupthink has inevitably emerged there. And this groupthink consistently places Israel, Israeli framings, and Israeli perspectives above those of Palestinians. A keyword search of the Times editorials that discuss Palestinians is like this. Between 1970 and 2019, the word peace appeared 1,112 times, but justice only appeared 86 times. Terror was mentioned 649 times, but occupation was only mentioned 219 times. 219 times. I want to also remind you, this is from starting from 1970. Israel's security, quote-unquote, was written 90 times, but Palestinian freedom was mentioned just three times. While keyboard searches alone do not tell the whole story, they do help us get a sense of the overall tenor of the Times coverage. And over the last five decades, Israel has been unquestioningly presented by Times editors as a close ally, while the Palestinians have been consistently framed as a problem. So I want to talk about this. There was an excellent piece that came out in Study Hall. Um, I believe it's based on uh, some reporting in a Canadian outlet called Passage. Um, Study Hall is... uh, uh, a, a freelance journalists uh, like group like list serve, but they also do some editorial work. Um, but it's talking about this this um, Israeli nonprofit or Israeli funded nonprofits based in the US and and also in Israel um, called Honest Reporting. Uh, what it is is a five hundred one c three, and essentially what they've done is is what Shireen describes, right? Where they've they've found uh, not. Uh, I believe mostly Palestinian reporters, perhaps also uh, non-Palestinian reporters who are reporting from this. Uh, I, I guess what, from what I would describe as a as a facts-based approach to this, which is describing what's happening as an apartheid, uh, and they've dived into these people's background, their previous tweets, their previous writing, their uh, other work to describe them as biased and get their articles taken down. Um, and they've done this to some very like this, this has happened to the times right and this is at a time like uh i know shireen mentioned something that happened in 2011 but i know that in in 2010 uh the jerusalem bureau chief of the times had a child serving in the idf right so like you know if uh if i had a uh 
you know, like, like you, you, if if I was a journalist and I said, yeah, you know, I, I actually have a son who's in the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade. Like they're, they're not going to, they're not going to commission my piece. Um, but they've, they, for instance, Hossam Salem, if, I don't know, do you, have you seen Hossam's work? I I don't know. My brain doesn't okay. work anymore, He's, I've but. worked with Hassan before. He's a friend of mine. He's an incredibly gifted photojournalist. People should follow him on the mm-hmm. places where they see photographs. Uh, he's blacklisted by the Times based on an honest reporting probe into his quote-unquote bias, um, which wow. his photos of Gaza are some of the most emotive photographs of Gaza like I've ever seen. Um, I work with him on a piece that will one day become a podcast uh, about parkour in, in the Gaza Strip. But also, yeah, Hossam is a fantastic photojournalist and absolutely, like, it is, it's utterly ridiculous to, to have, like, have him blacklisted by a major news organization, which, like, whether we like it or not, it, that is where a lot of Americans get their news. In one instance, this organization managed to get the Toronto Star to scrub all uses of Palestine from their stories. Oh. So, like, to include shit wow. like, yeah, like, like they were profiling a DJ who was Palestinian. Uh, and, and, and wow. Like, which I think is, like, incredibly illustrative, right? That, like, this is organization presents itself as fighting anti-Israeli bias, which I'm sure mm-hmm. that is a thing that exists. It fucking does not exist in the US media. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm not a Palestinian person, but I speak as a person who has pitched articles about conflict in, in various parts of the world. And I can tell you that, that that is not a bias that I have come across having worked with almost every big outlet that it is possible to work for in the US. Um it's not doing that. It's trying to erase Palestine and Palestinian people, not only their perspectives, but their whole existence, right? Um, this is something that I harp on a lot, but like I think we should do more conflict reporting that's about people and less it is about numbers and battles and such. Like mm-hmm. That's why I want to write about uh, little girls who surf in Gaza and, and young men who do mm-hmm. parkour because like when Israel bombs Gaza, it, it doesn't just bomb people who are part of uh, Fatah or, or, or Hamas or whatever they want to say they're targeting, right? Like the uh, b- b- lion's den or Janine Brigades, whatever. They're, when they're bombing these places, they're also bombing children. They're also bombing places where little kids want to go and play football. They're bombing towns where little boys want to... I mean, they bomb hospitals and yeah, schools. And, and yeah. yeah, like the... This is where people just like you live. It's not like a... It, there's a very clear desire to kind of erase Palestinian civilians, I guess, from our narrative. And it's really important that we as journalists and as people don't allow that to happen, I guess. You can, we'll link to this mm-hmm. in our sources uh, at the end of the month, but I think it's an excellent piece. It's worth reading. Thank you for mentioning that. Mm-hmm, um, of course. Before we continue mm-hmm. uh, with some really excellent new things, um, let's take our second break and we'll be right back. Yes. We're back. And, um, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, like the, the, I guess, the Israeli political context behind the increased aggression towards Janine and Palestine in general. So of the 165 Palestinian deaths, about 86 were in the North and West Bank, mostly in the areas of Janine and Nablus, which cannot coincidentally are the areas where we're seeing new armed groups emerging. Despite this, Israel is readying to massively step up settlement in the West Bank. Earlier in June, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu ratified a policy allowing pro-settler finance minister Bezalel Smotrich 
to bypass the six-stage process for building settlements, effectively giving him the ability to make settlement decisions on his own. In recent years, Israeli politicians and settlers have become more and more open about their goals of annexing most, if not all, of the West Bank. So in March of this year, Smotrich claimed that Palestinian people were an invention of the last century. Uh, it's probably worth taking a moment to point out that all national identities are inherently constructed. Uh, like humanity did not come to earth with flags. Uh, those are things that, that came to exist in the 19th mm-hmm. and 20th century. Like this like so is israel right like like yeah exactly we can kind of put a date on that one uh so that's just so that's like literally projecting an invention of the last century is literally israel whatever yeah the the state of israel yeah i mean nations calling other nations constructed is kind of the pot calling the kettle black like yeah yeah, uh, yeah but uh so in so much as if we're going to do that i think israel is throwing stones from a glass house um yeah exactly uh it it's like it doesn't really fucking matter either, right? Like, it doesn't matter how long the, one group of people has had one flag. You, you still shouldn't fucking kill children. Mm-hmm. Which applies to anyone involved in the killing of children. So Montrich said that there was no such thing as a Palestinian because there is no such thing as a Palestinian people. In a speech in Paris, said a memorial for Jacques Kupfer, an activist of Israel's right-wing Likud party. Do you know who are the Palestinians? He said, I'm a Palestinian. <laughs> going on to describe his late grandfather, who he said was a 13th generation Jerusalemite as a true Palestinian, um, which is somewhat... Look, these people are supposed to be contradictory. Like, it's not really worth fucking pointing this out, but, like, you can't simultaneously say there are no Palestinians, Palestine doesn't exist, also, I'm a Palestinian. Uh, like, right. It is... It, again, not, not the point, I guess. He was a resident. He is a resident of one of the settlements himself. He's an advocate for theocratic law, the segregation of maternity wards. Um, so he, he doesn't want Arab and, and Israeli women to give birth in the same so room. ridiculous. Yeah, it's, his justification for it is like even worse, but I won't bother with that. Uh, he's also openly homophobic. And he supports the conspiracy theory that Yitzhak Rabin was killed by Israel security agencies. All around top guy. Likud, Benjamin Netanyahu's party likes to use names for the West Bank that you might find in the Bible, and has made accelerating illegal settlement there a priority. Since it took office, Netanyahu's coalition has approved 7,000 new housing units, many in the occupied West Bank. The government also amended a law to clear the way for settlers to return to four settlements that had previously been evacuated. Within a week of having the power to make these decisions, Smotrich approved 5,000 new units. Um, we... <laughs> This is a great time to draw uh, attention to one of the most fucking uh, infuriating paragraphs that has ever been written, uh, which I found in a New York Times article (laughs) that Uh, suggested... Yeah, I can't believe this is real. James sent it to me before this, (laughs) and it is crazy. I I like to censure into stuff I know will make her angry. Uh, Of course, not all West Bank settlers are ultra-nationalists who believe that living in the land of the Bible is a religious edict. Most settlers, in fact, including hundreds of thousands of ultra-Orthodox Jews, move there seeking affordable housing. I am fucking, like, I cannot with I lost shit. it. Like, like, when yeah, I got to yeah, affordable like, housing, yeah, yeah. I checked out mentally, I catapulted myself into outer space, I don't want to be here anymore. Uh, yeah, that is ridiculous. I, I have decided to curl up into a ball and no longer exist. Uh, like, this is from the newspaper as well that like went so fucking ham on people in 2020, like, uh, taking milk from a target. You know, like, like, mm-hmm. 
uh, when you go like seeking affordable dairy products, I guess could have been an alternative framing yeah. of that. They didn't. They didn't go for it. It's just fucking unbelievable. Like the, the, the like the shit that Freakonomics has done to people's brains uh, is it's really next level. Um, but people, more people listen to our podcast than their podcast because we're winning in the marketplace of ideas. And so, all in, seven hundred and fifty thousand people live in these settlements, but. Being illegal under international law doesn't really mean anything unless that law is enforced, and it rarely is. We spoke about this before, right? Just like the US, which frequently violates domestic and international law on its own border, Israel is simply not held to account for its crimes. United Nations Special Rapporteur on Palestine, Francisco Albanese, told Al Jazeera that international law has a quote-unquote problem of enforcement. There is a problem of double standards, because clearly, when it comes to Palestine, there is a cognitive dissonance, especially among Western countries, and reticence in applying these coercive measures and all the prohibitions international law affords, Albanese said. Yeah, we already mentioned how just even the phrase international law, it's just make-believe. Like, you always hear about Israel uh, even like committing crimes against humanity. None of that even seems to matter when it comes to Israel because... There's never a repercussion. Yeah, it doesn't matter anywhere that there's no direct interest of to capital to enforcing that law, right? It doesn't matter when young women in Myanmar get raped by soldiers. It doesn't matter when villages get burned down there. It doesn't matter in Tigray in, in Ethiopia and Eritrea because there's no interest to finance capital of, of solving those, that problem. It's not just a, a, a Palestine thing. It, it's, it's, it's a thing all over the world and it... Like, Laws are fundamentally like backed up by violence, right? Like in, in America, if you get a parking ticket and you don't pay your parking ticket and you have to go to court and you don't go to court, eventually someone with a gun will come and kick down your door. And, and like all laws are based in violence and mm-hmm. there ain't no one kicking down Israel's door, right? And no one will. And, no. and so it doesn't matter. International law doesn't matter. It's not... It's nice that it's there. We can point to it and say, look, we've all agreed this is bad. But we all know it's bad. Like, we don't really need a bunch of, uh, like, old men in suits to, to tell us it's bad. We, we knew it was bad. What we need is to fucking make it stop. And, and that's not happening. Yeah. I think it's also interesting to mention that internationally, even when you get better, quote unquote, reporting about Palestine, it still is not enough because it's usually about peace and both sides or a conflict or whatever. So I just think... I mean, that also goes back to news and how it's reported. But this stubborn insistence on blaming both sides is reflective of a deeply flawed, quote-unquote, peace framework. And it has dominated the international understanding of the Israel-Palestine, quote-unquote, conflict for decades. The framework of peace centers on identity politics and ignores the structural violence that the state perpetuates against oppressed groups. It instead focuses on acts of spectacular violence committed by those groups in response to the oppression they face. And it also blames them for escalating conflict and then uses it to justify their oppressive violence by the more powerful forces. To go back to the New York Times briefly, many of the Times editorials over the last 30 years since the advent of the Oslo Accords have been steeped in the peace framework. They treat Israelis and Palestinians as having equal power when they clearly don't. They praise Israel for minor adjustments to its daily structural violence against Palestinians, but in the same breath, they scold Palestinian leaders and society for acts of violence done in turn. And the word conflict 
is also problematic in and of itself because Palestine isn't some conflict or problem for Israel to sort out. It's a cause for everyone to fight for. Since 1948, the Israeli state has prevented Palestinians from living in their homeland with freedom and dignity, whether it's by banning refugees from returning to their homes or discriminating against Palestinian citizens inside Israel or keeping millions of Palestinians under military occupation. If there is a problem to be solved, that problem is the regime itself. But this fact of bias and shitty reporting And the fact that the truth is not out there, that fact seems to have eluded the Times editorial board. Because rather than recognize the systemic violence, discrimination, and colonization perpetuated by Israel against Palestinians, the board blames quote-unquote both sides for a vastly asymmetric situation. This both-sidesism may give the appearance of balance, but it does not reflect the reality in which Israel holds almost total political, economic, and military power over the lives of every Palestinian in a system that growing numbers of scholars, human rights groups, and legal experts are defining as apartheid. But I do hope some of this was at least uh, helpful. And Mm -hmm. I mean, we'll probably be back to do the same kind of thing soon because Israel is relentless and stupid and I hate it. Um, So until then, uh, fuck the IDF and have a nice day. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here and this season takes it to a whole new level old school legends modern power players and ex-lovers are all competing in cape town south africa for the prize of three hundred thousand dollars and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast listen to mtv's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.